What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square, this is Fast Money. I am Brian, in today for Melissa. Good evening, everybody. Your traders on the desk tonight are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, markets locking in another round of records. Stocks continue their slow and steady climb to the end of the year. The question is this, can anything stop this rally? We're going to dig in. Plus, a major development on the opioid makers. We'll tell you what sent many of those stocks tumbling today, 3, 4, and even 8%. And later, building on some big gains. Why the options market is betting on a bounce for one Home Depot. All right, all that ahead. But we start with the big countdown. Mm. And no, it's... Which one is that? Just hold on. Sorry. It's not the countdown until Friday. It's not the countdown until Christmas. I hear, I hear sleigh bells. Oh. They, they mixed up the uh, Santa with the record. Anyway, yeah. we are just now 18 days away from the next round of tariffs mm. kicking in. And we heard today from two retailers today with two very different takes on the looming levies. Dollar Tree, that stock tanking after they cut their guidance due to what else? The tariffs, among other things. Best Buy, though, it soared. They raised their outlook, saying the impact of the tariffs has already been factored in and dealt with. So really, with all due respect to Dickens, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It's a tale, Guy Adami, of two two retailers. Oh, oh, I see what you did there. What story are you buying? And you could do a would you rather almost here, but first of all, welcome. I I find it. Welcome to Brian. Welcome to Brian. He's clearly playing hurt tonight. If you listen to his voice, if you're listening on radio. It is grim. But you're here. Thank you. And I'm I'm by choice. I think we are. You always have a choice. Literally everyone else is off. No, I, I don't think it, you know, Dollar Tree doesn't say anything about the consumer. And I don't think Best Buy says anything about the consumer necessarily. It says about how they sort of have situated themselves in the environment we find ourselves in. Dollar Tree blaming tariffs to me is the old, it's tariffs are the new weather. doesn't work anymore. Oh, I, like I mean, that. other, right? I mean, other retailers have seemed to figure it out. I mean, you even look at a Nordstrom's, which did pretty well. Best Buy, which has done well. Target's been on fire. So I think the, the, Stocks that are the companies that are not performing yeah. are being punished correctly, well, and I don't think you want to buy these names necessarily. I think you are very right because they're. If I'm and my numbers may be a little bit off, but they, I think their guidance miss was like twenty seven cents or something, and only six of that, six of the twenty seven cents were the tariffs. Mm-hmm. So you had twenty one cents, Dan Nathan, of other problems. Right. So, you know, this morning, Steve Leeson uh, interviewed the Fed, uh, Dallas Fed chair uh, Kaplan. I thought it was kind of an interesting conversation. He was talking about Q4 GDP. They were talking about some of the issues with destocking. I think one of the issues that we're going to see um, if these tariffs you just said were 18 days away from that, who knows if they come in or not. The issue is going to be how promotional um, are these retailers are going to be and what sort of inventories do they have. And as we head into 2020, what does the tariff situation look like? Because remember, these are really important. This is a really important quarter, obviously, for retailers 
and the rest could turn into a disaster. And I'll just mention that the XRT, which is the ETF that tracks the retail sector, is only up 10 percent of the year. We know, much like mega cap tech, I'm just saying that that the major big box guys have been doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Picking it. A lot of, yeah. No, it, it's, it's a great point. Consumer confidence today, with four months in a row, we haven't been, you know, I think really knocking the cover up the ball on confidence, whatever you want to do with that, because it's a bit of a lagging indica- indicator. Jobless claims, by the way, if we want to watch the consumer, we're worried about the consumer, and I, then I want to get back to Best Buy. It's certainly something I'd be watching. We have two straight weeks. Next week, you should watch that number, because the peak labor folks think this is something to watch. But back to Best Buy. Look, these guys are usually very conservative in their guide. They beat their comps, 2% comps U.S. Uh, and global was better than expected slightly. And for people that are very conservative, and with a holiday season with six peak shopping days less than expected. This was very, very strong insight into what I think is the consumer. I mean, let's be clear. Um, where are they going on discretionary items? They're walking into Best Buy and buying them. And I think this was a very... You know, you know Karen, it, this, this makes me think more and more what like Jim Cramer has been talking about. Everybody wants to buy ETFs because they want to buy the market. Don't worry about the stocks. We're starting to realize that in this environment, when you've got to actually be good at your job, Mm -hmm. stocks matter because management matters. And what we're figuring out is people like Best Buy have figured it out, and some companies haven't. And we're doing this. And if you buy a basket, to Dan's point, you're probably not going to do that well. You're going to be in the middle somewhere. So if you think you can do better than that, I think you're exactly right. This consumer is alive, but they're not shopping everywhere. They're shopping where it's interesting to them or or it's a good value or it's an exciting store. If you look at something like a Target, right, fantastic. You look at something like a, a Nordstrom versus a Macy's. Macy's can't seem to get it together, but Nordstrom seems to actually be finding its way. Dillard's, too. Kohl's, the opposite. You know, and they're struggling and I think that it's not, a, it's not the consumer at all. Dollar Tree has some other issues. It's labor. But I do think that there are winners and losers. And, I mean, Best Buy is fascinating to me. This thing was left for dead for so many reasons, Amazon being one of them, the consumer being another. And, you know, and they have a new, new CEO. She seems to be doing a great job. Really impressive. The PE multiple here for Best Buy is it's not crazy expensive, but... But for itself. But for itself, right. It's, it's getting rich. But, but it's yeah. interesting. I just want to make one point about that because you just said they've gotten it right. It's still 25% from its all-time highs made in 2016, so down. It did have this massive update today, and I think that the multiple getting rich to its history with no growth inside... I mean, this is a low single-digit grower for life, and when you think about what the main story is here about retail, and one of the reasons why Amazon is kind of stuck in the mud here is that Amazon has caused everybody to deliver... What what you think you want yesterday, right? And that cost associated with that has been a huge tax on a lot of people. And then you get to these tariffs now. Sooner or later, these retailers are going to figure out whether they're going to pass it on or they're absorb a lot of it, too. So this is as good as it gets right now for so, a lot so, of these retailers. But if you say that, you have to say that about Target and Walmart, because effectively they've done the same thing. And those, look, Best Buy's up 53% this year. Best Buy has been a yeah. safe haven. And look, I, I've been wrong. I was wrong on Best Buy six months ago thinking they were going to yeah. be a poster child. Why? Because of tariffs. But, but here's, of the okay, but here's where I stay. Here's, with all due respect, my good friend. That's, here's about to insult me. Here, I, here we go. Here we go. They're going to drop Sound the like, whammy. Like, here we go. I'm no ready. whammies. Here we I'm, go. I'm ready. I, I feel like what people might have missed with Best Buy is that the price of a flat panel TV was three grand five years ago. Same TV today is 1500 So even, you know, just because of Moore's Law and technology. So even adding on the tariff... Best Buys, aren't they in an environment where price deflation is the norm? 
They are, but but think of the the competition, the competition from Amazon and every other person in Walmart and every other flat screen maker. I mean, look, the, the good news for Best Buy is you probably got a preview into Best Buy when you saw Apple iPhone shipments out, outperform. Look at Samsung trading near all time highs. I know it's not just about Samsung is a chip play as much as it is a hardware play. But but there are other ways you could have seen the strength of the consumer leading into this Best Buy number, and I think it's clear. And quickly, I mean, the person that typically sits in that seat, Melissa Lee. I mean, she's the poster child for somebody that uses Best by as a showroom and then she goes home to the comfort of her home well, and on the you. Amazon. Yeah. No, it's not me. It's you. not me. I, never, we, I don't buy it online. On no, 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 no. She's don't. like that meme with the guy and the girl and the other girl where they're looking and they're holding hands there and he's looking back. The Mimi. Yeah. I've seen <laughs> that one. But quickly, you want to stop? The looking back is Amazon. Dick's the holding hands I mean, is Best You know, buy. Dollar Tree was a disaster. You look at Dick's Sporting Goods. Comps were up 6%. That was twice what the street was looking for them. Operating margin, 3.2%. Two and a half was what the street was looking for. I mean, yep. this was a fantastic quarter. And when you're talking about a stock with a... 30% short interest, people say that's the end of the run. I don't think so. I and, think there's you know, further upside There's here. so many lessons here, I think, for the audience, the listeners and viewers, and you guys do it so well every night. And I think that with, with don't nod, Dan, with, with, with Dick's Sporting Goods, I think there's another lesson here. You talked about tariffs are going to kill Best Buy. Guess what? They didn't. A year and a half, and this is not a political statement, Best uh, Dick's Sporting Goods, a year and a half ago, Amazon said was going to kill they're, they're, No, they're no, gonna, no, Dick's said they're going to stop guns. selling assault-style rifles. Okay. Mm-hmm. And everybody, you know, people said, you know, hey, Second Amendment, they said, no, no. It's a bad decision. You're not going to make. Guess what? The stock is up 50% since that announcement. I'm not saying it's good or bad. What I'm saying is the conventional wisdom on what Dixon said was wrong, on tariffs on Best Buy was wrong. You've really got to dig through those numbers. Well, I think it gets back to what you're saying, though. Dix and Best Buy are two great examples of companies that were facing this secular headwind and were being Amazon. Their core business was, what, what can you buy Dix that you can't buy on Amazon? But you want to go in and buy sporting goods. You actually kind of want to see what's going on. You want to throw a football in the store like sure I do. Um, so I, I think what you've said, Brian, about you've seen the separation of the companies that have been able to adapt and change. You've been able to see how Walmart's been given more of a call it a dot-com multiple because of what they're doing online. You see what Target doing and, and how they've increased their online sales. Those companies that have been able to lower expenses and actually grow that part of their business are being rewarded and trading at a higher multiple. We're betting on management, Karen, in a way. In right? a way. Betting on people. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I think sometimes you bet on the business and it doesn't matter how good the manager is if the business is bad. I mean, Best Buy, we'll see. If, I mean, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, we'll see if they can yeah. survive Amazon. Well, Target's up 92% this year. It's almost doubled. Unbelievable. All right. Well, if you are worried about another round of tariffs hitting your portfolio, you might be better off parking some of your money at home. Mm. Apparently with Melissa Lee, who's trolling Amazon right now. Or let's go off the charts with Chris Verone of Strategus. Chris, what do you got for us tonight? Hey, Brian, we're going to talk about small caps. And I think this is one of those neglected areas of the market that's finally getting involved. This is a year-to-date chart of the Russell 2000. Let's just set the playing field here. We spent basically the entire year in a well-defined range. This is a 150-point range, uh, 1,600 on the high side, 1,450 on the low side, just starting to break out here. So finally starting to play catch-up with large caps. This projects about 10% higher, about 1,750, 1,775 on the Russell 2000 chart. But if you think about the year, we had four corrections here. We were down 8%, down 10, down 10, down 7. So We've spent the year range bound. We have just broken out. I think it's too soon to fade this, particularly when you put it in context of the longer-term picture here. We had an 80% up move off the 2016 lows. 
And then you know what? Last year, we had a bear market in small caps. Small down 27, high to low. We ricocheted off the low. We spent most of the year in a range just finally starting to break out. And, you know, one thing we looked at with a 52-week high in the Russell 2000 this week, when you've gone more than a year without making one and then you make a 52-week high, the forward performance over the next 12 months is universally historically very, very strong. There were 12 examples of this. 11 of them were positive 12 months forward. So we think we have history uh, on our side here. I think the big question is, do small caps present a better case versus large? So what we want to look at here on that score is small relative to large. There is some indication that we're finally starting to see some basing here. So in relative terms, at worst, they're keeping up at best, maybe some outperformance. And, you know, if you think about what comprises the Russell 2000, you have to go where the weights are. It's a very concentrated index. 10% of Russell 2 are banks. Another 8 is biotech. Another 7 is software. These are the three largest groups. We like the banks here among the small ones. We think the biotechs are getting better. Own some small caps here. They've broken out. Chris, thank you. Why don't you come on over to the desk? We'll talk more about this here. Listen, yeah. small guy. I saw you sort of gesticulating. I wasn't. Just, I was actually guy. waving at Will. Have you met Will, our, our intern? Will is, does a fantastic job. Will has done a great yes. job. Will thinks he's getting home tomorrow night, flying a 10 p.m. or from LaGuardia to Boston. <laughs> Will, we'll see you Thanksgiving morning back here in New York <laughs> at the Sullivan uh, At the right. Sullivan, you're welcome to come to New Jersey. But I mean, are you a, buy- a buyer of the small cap? Well, no. Guy? Chris makes a great point. I mean, he says breaking out, and he's probably right. But as Dan mentioned last night. On the Fast Money Show at five o'clock. You know this one sixty-one and a half level in the IWM. This is precisely the same high we made back in May. So we're on the cusp of breakout. I think what's happening is the Russell, the small caps, are now catching up to the S and P five hundred. The all-time high made back in August of last year around one seventy-three. Tim asked last night how much room is left, and I think the answer in the IWM is probably about seven and a half percent. But Chris, do you think is this a catch-up trade, or is it going to be a rotation that we're going to see this thing sustained and really make a run at those prior highs? I think this is a catch-up trade yeah. in small versions. I still think this is a cycle dominated by big cap stocks. But this is the time of year when we look for neglected areas that haven't played ball all year. And I think small caps satisfy that. And when you look at what comprises it. A lot of healthcare, a lot of banks, two corners of the market that have started to get a little bit better. I would also note participation is actually getting broader. Uh, you have more small cap stocks above their 200 day moving average at any point than about two years now. So we've seen this broaden out. We've seen the leadership start to get in gear. I think it's a positive. Let me, let me ask you, yeah. do you feel more strongly about the relative valuation of small caps versus large caps or the upward trend of would have to be both? I think the trouble with valuation here is money is still free. You, know, you have 10-year yields at 175, and I think in environments where the cost of capital is basically zero, using valuation as a timing tool isn't very effective. So I'm making a chart call here. I'm making a trend call here, not a valuation call. All right, Chris, we do appreciate it. Watching yeah. small caps, we'll see if they can catch up. All right, we've got a news alert right now on the Boeing 737 Max. Let's find out what's going on with Phil LeBeau. Phil. Brian, the FAA is out with a statement that it has just released regarding the certification or recertification and uh, issuance of an airworthiness directive that would lift the grounding of 737 MAXs. This statement is the latest 
move by the FAA to push back against Boeing and this suggestion that the 737 MAX will be recertified in December and potentially back in service by the end of January. Without coming out and saying it explicitly in this statement from the uh, FAA, they have essentially said that, look, we retain full control over the recertification of the MAX and the issuance of airworthiness directives that would lift the uh, grounding of those MAXs that are already built and are grounded while they uh, work on a fix for the plane. It ends with this statement. The FAA has not completed its review of the 737 MAX aircraft design changes and associated pilot training. The agency will not approve the aircraft to return to service until it has completed numerous rounds of rigorous testing. That's important, Brian, because they're nowhere close. There are a number of hurdles that still need to be cleared, including a certification flight, a report on that certification flight, They've got a couple of uh, reports from committees that are set up that have public comment periods. Bottom line is this. Without coming out and saying it, the FAA has essentially said this plane is it's unlikely that it's going to be recertified by the end of the year. So now we're, um, we're definitely, I mean, I don't say definitely, but we are looking at 2020. I mean, Phil, I know you've been reporting on this as well as anybody. We keep going with this. At some point, is there, and these planes, by the way, they're sitting there. They're aging. Yeah. I assume they're being maintained but at some point, you get to a point where, where owners of these planes, United and Americans, say, we don't want them back. We don't want them anymore. No, I don't, think we'll, I don't problem, think we'll get to that point, Brian. I don't think we'll get to the point where they say, take them back. We're not going to fly them. I mean, they believe that these planes will be in service. And I think the FAA believes that as well. But it is clear over the last two weeks, you take this statement, you take the memo that the head of the FAA wrote to the person in charge of the recertification process, you take his video statement to his employees saying, we're in charge, they're not in charge. I mean, this is as clear as it can be to Boeing's management. Knock off the predictions that this plane is going to be recertified anytime soon. The FAA is adamant that it controls the process. Uh Phil, it's Karen. Let me ask you something. So do you think that we're not going to hear anything from Boeing about the recertification anytime soon? I bet, Karen, I bet you what we will hear is some kind of uh, very short statement saying we respect the process. We respect the role of the regulators. We are working with the regulators and we are looking forward to the plane being returned to service. I bet you that's what we'll see, because the last time they came out with a statement saying we expect it to be recertified uh, in December, that was what, November 11th, two weeks ago? Since then, we've heard from the yeah. FAA three times, and all three times they've said, uh-uh, we make that decision, not you. Phil, we've got to let you go, but I want to ask you this very this quick question. Is it, is it unfair to say we're moving backwards, but is it fair to say we're not moving very far forwards? I think that's more accurate to say we're not moving forward as fast as Boeing would hope. That's the most accurate statement. It's not moving backwards. Look, they're going to certify this plane likely maybe by shortly after the new year, maybe by the end of January. It's not like we're looking at something that's open-ended. But at the yeah. same time, I mean, the FAA is, is, is clearly sending a message. It certainly is. Philibo, thank you very much, buddy. Breaking news there. I mean, Guy Adami, I mean, yes, Boeing, obviously this is an important story in itself. <coughs> Two tragic accidents. A lot of consumers are watching what happens. It also happens to be the most important stock in the Dow. I know professionals don't look at the Dow, but it's a psychological thing. I it's agree the 100%. highest price stock in the Dow. It matters. It does matter. And if you go back in March when it was a $440 stock, the level that it traded down to in a straight line off the back of these announcements was 375 And here we are again at 375 We've talked about this a number of times on this show. You sell the stock at 375 That's where it's failed a number of times, and it looks like it's going to fail again. What the FAA is saying is basically, no, 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 Boeing, 
You don't tell us but, what our job is. We'll tell you when these planes and, are ready. And that's but what, of course, they have to say this. And of course, they're under the microscope right now. There's nothing different than what, what I'm hearing right now. The company, Boeing themselves, came out November 10th, 11th, 12th, somewhere in there and mm-hmm. said there's, there's five conditions that we have to satisfy, and four of them. We're not even there on, uh, including training that Phil talked about, which I think is probably the one with the longest tail on it of uncertainty. So I don't think there's any new news here. I mean, I, I think ultimately the company is being very conservative. The street has had some ability to begin to model 2020 yep. deliveries for 2020 that begin in the first quarter. The stock is nothing, still up. Nothing 15, new has happened. Stock is still up 15 percent this year. Still up 15. Are you surprised by that, Tim? No, I'm not. And, and I'm long the stock. So I'm certainly speaking from a perspective. Uh, I actually feel pretty comfortable with, with the process here, even despite the tragedy. Um, I think no one has expectations they are going to come to market faster than expected. Okay, good stuff. And breaking news there from Philip Bowen Boeing. Coming up, major developments in the nation's opioid epidemic. The big news that sent these stocks tumbling today. And later, it is by far the worst performing sector of the year. Look at something happening next week. Finally change. Oils. Terrible. No good. Very bad. 2019. We are live from Times Square. There's much more Fast Money right after this. The market doesn't joke around. So why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. We are following a developing story in the opioid makers. The Wall Street Journal reporting federal prosecutors have opened up a criminal probe into a number of these companies. Let's get right now to Meg Terrell back at CNBC HQ with more of these details. Meg. Hey, Brian. Well, these companies are already facing thousands of lawsuits over their role in the opioid crisis. And this may be a case of another negative headline rattling stocks. Now, we already knew that these drug makers and distributors had received subpoenas from U.S. attorneys concerning the Controlled Substances Act. Those are Johnson & Johnson, Teva, Mallinckrodt, and Amniel on the drug company side, and Amerisource Bergen and McKesson of the distributors. Now, the Journal reported today that federal prosecutors have opened a criminal investigation into drug companies, examining whether they violated that act, which the journal points out is normally used to go after drug dealers. Well, I spoke with a Bernstein analyst, Ronnie Gal, who said he was surprised that the stocks were moving so sharply lower on this. He said investigations are one thing, but criminal prosecutions would be another. And right now the report is that the probe is in its early stages. But he also pointed out that these stocks had recovered quite a bit over the last month on some potential expected relief in these lawsuits, particularly Teva. Some of the companies have reached a tentative settlement framework with some state attorneys general over the opioid litigation. But not all states are on board, and it's not a done deal. Meanwhile, OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma continues to make its way through bankruptcy, trying to get more state AGs on board with its settlement proposal, which is contingent on settling DOJ probes as well. And a New York case against multiple companies is scheduled to go to trial early next year, unless the settlement is reached there. The headline today, just another reminder, guys, that this saga is far from over for these companies. Brian? Yeah, Meg Terrell, Meg, thank you very much. All right, guys, let's talk more about this. I mean, these are big names. The stocks got hit today. But this is an issue. We're talking about a criminal probe. We're not talking about a civil case. We're talking about criminal right. charges here, guys. So the headline risk is significant. A name like McKesson, for example, and it's done this a number of times within the last six months, 130, 155, back to 130, back to 155. It's probably headed back down to the 135 level. You trade these stocks 
Right now, you don't own them because that's not the environment we find ourselves in. People say McKesson nine times it's cheap. It is cheap, but the headline risk is too severe. So it's down 7% today. My sense is there's further room to the downside. But at a 135 level, I think you close your eyes and you buy it again. Well, if you think about a J&J, so they are clearly both the most diversified and the one who's got the biggest balance sheet and, in fact, rallied uh, on a couple small state settlements uh, in terms of civil charges. So if you think about the headlines that are going to continue to fly in the face of, of and frankly, on Johnson Johnson, a handful of fronts, um, I don't think you have to go in there and run it. You don't have to go run in there tomorrow and buy it. But I do think you have a dynamic here with a company that is at least made it very clear. There are places where they think, you know, we're, it's worth selling and places where they're going to dig in very hard. And ultimately, we've seen this balance sheet is actually a rallying cry for the stock during difficult times. So um, I, I actually think this is very well insulated around here as best as I can understand a very unclear federal criminal environment. Yeah, I mean, you got Teva, which is down 54 percent in a year. Amnil, which is probably too small to mention. I mean, Meg mentioned it, so I will again, but it's down 83%. Let's not forget about, you remember Insys Therapeutics? Anybody remember Insys? Sure. Yeah. They, 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 they filed yeah. for bankruptcy in June. The stock basically went to zero because they had criminal charges around opioids. Now, they were more of a sort of a, a biotech based in Arizona. The point I'm trying to make is, Karen, I do wonder, you don't know where these are going to go. This is a national crisis. We're talking about criminal charges. Any reason to own any of them? In that circumstance, I guess if I had to own one, I would go to J and J. They've got so many other so businesses. Many, well, there's so many other businesses, and they can afford it, right? The balance sheet, is, as Tim was talking about, is in the best shape of any of them. But I don't think you need to. I don't know why you need to. Um, I don't know why you need to chase them. There you go. All right. For more on the investigation into the opioid makers, head over to our website, CBC.com. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. Energy has been one of the most hated plays of the year. But are things about to change? And later, diving into Disney Plus. How the subscription service added 15 million users in just two weeks. And what it means for the rest of the streaming world. We've got that and a lot more on Fast Money when we come back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. It has been, shall we say, a difficult year for oil and oil stocks. I would say underperforming the broader market by 50% is the definition of a tough year. But could next week change all that? OPEC is holding a production meeting in Austria. Aramco expected to price its mega IPO. And this is the first OPEC meeting where the king of Saudi Arabia's son will come in as the energy minister. Spring and Halima Croft, global head of commodity strategy at RBC. I mean... You've got the King's son, the new energy minister. You've got the Aramco IPO pricing. And you've got, by the way, and this is, I think, the greatest irony of all, a U.S. oil and gas industry 
who hated OPEC for 40 years, who may now need OPEC. No, it's the phone a friend. I mean, you have U.S. shale producers who watch OPEC meetings very carefully to see if they're getting a lifeline from this producer organization. Now, it looks like it's set up that they're going to roll this agreement over, a 1.2 million barrel day production cut, maybe kick it out to June, but there's not a lot of appetite to go much deeper and give that lifeboat to shale. And the reason that I said that is because, you know, we've been talking about the debt threat on oil for a long time. Hundreds of billions of dollars are due, 55, 57 bucks a barrel, not going to cut it. Does OPEC have the power to rescue the U.S. oil and gas Oh, think about Secretary General Barkindo. Just a couple weeks ago at ADIPAC, (laughs) he kept talking about the forecast for slowing shale growth next year, saying the macro picture may not look as bad as expected. All that looks like it's set up for is they roll it over, but I don't think they want to give a huge lifeline to shale. I think they're prepared to tread water. I think they're going to work behind the scenes. So Prince Abdelaziz, the Saudi oil minister, he's a veteran. I mean, he's been at all these OPEC meetings over three decades in the industry. He's the ultimate behind-the-scenes diplomat. He will put his foot on the neck of the errant producers and say, get your act together. He doesn't want Saudi to do more than everybody else. Everyone carries their own weight. But that's how they're going to get this done. But I don't think they're going to come out with a big statement that's going to give the Permian producers a lot of hope that OPEC is going to continually be there to help them out. If you think about the the geopolitics of oil right now, who really is holding the powers? It's still OPEC to the non So this is the same kind of topic. At one point, it felt as if U.S. non-conventional had the ability to be a swing producer. End of the day, Saudi's still the only one out there that's... Only one with spare capacity. And that's why everyone was so concerned on September 14th when we had those devastating attacks on the kingdom. Because the only country that can really bring it on that has surge capacity is Saudi Arabia. And so everybody watches what their policy is going to be. And that's why, again, you have a whole constituency of U.S. producers that have been very closely invested in the outcome of OPEC meetings. Even though President Trump has been very critical of the organization, that floor has been a lifeline for producers. The integrated names have had difficulties. ExxonMobil, this 68 level, has been support. I'm not asking you to play stock market, but are the integrated names, are they in trouble in this environment? To Brian's earlier point about being underperformers and... He didn't talk about death crosses and those things, but I mean, there, there's really a lot on the line for these no, guys and gals. It's a, it's a challenging price environment, but I think there's a sort of an existential issue that's hanging over this market as well. You know, what does the future look like for oil demand? What does it look like for you know electric vehicles? It's an industry that has faced a relentless criticism this year from environmental activists. I mean, you really saw the oil and money meeting. They were essentially shutting down streets of London. The industry, I think, feels under siege. And all the discussion about is ESG. And where do these companies fit in in that type of universe? So I think it's a price issue. But I think there's a broader question about the outlook for the industry. Well, I mean, listen, the outlook for some of these stocks, and again, Helene, I know you're not an equity analyst, but I mean, the average return of a company operating in the Bakken of North Dakota, I'm talking about Whiting, Oasis, Northern Continental, is negative 57%. It looked like cannabis stocks. Negative 57% for a company that pulls assets. The entire market cap, we ran this yesterday, the entire market cap of the U.S. oil and gas industry is $1.2 trillion. Aramco's market cap is expected to be $1.6. The entire U.S. oil and gas industry is worth $400 billion less than one company because of debt, because of debt. Well, I think this is a really interesting question when you bring it all back to OPEC. The producers in the Middle East keep saying, 
we are going to win the energy transition because the last barrel of oil is going to be produced from the Middle East. This is the low-cost oil. And I think that when we think about, like, why they may not be going for the big bank cut, you have a certain class of producers saying the current price outlook at Brent isn't fabulous. We prefer 70 Brent. Yeah. But... We can tread water Stable. right now. Yeah, Halima, we'll see you there yes, in Vienna next Stuff. week. Yes, you're going to give us an interview. I'll be there. We're yes. going to do an interview. Fantastic, Halima Croft of RBC. Excellent stuff there. I mean, the point I'm trying to make, whatever you think about fossil fuels, Tim, is I mean, the point is you're either going to believe these companies are going away, or at some point they're going to become a good value. There's only one of two outcomes because they're down 70 and 80 percent. Well, but you know, oil services are down 60 percent from the highs in 2018. You have a dynamic where the, the good news here is not only is OPEC possibly your friend, but you have uh, a capex opex dynamic where these companies are no longer running for growth at all costs, and in fact, they're running more for equity shareholders. I look at OFS, by the way. I think we've had rig oil field services. Oil field services. If you look at Schlumberger, you've had rig counts up for 15 straight months. You've actually got middle to high teens growth on up upstream spending on oil services for the first time in years. So I think it's you've gotten to a place where they're, yeah. they're way overdone. One, one of seven companies with an A credit rating or higher, which is Halliburton, Schlumberger, A, Baker Hughes, ConocoPhillips, Chevron, Exxon, and EOG. Wow. What's the Look at you. Well, Even hard you can yeah. pull that out. Sector I follow, by the way. Mm-hmm. Also yeah. may You're going to be in Vienna. Man, that's going to be exciting stuff. The Opera House, by the way, at this time of year, it's spectacular. I, I, the Christmas, I'm going to bring you back some Christmas sausage, Tim. I can only hope. I All right, coming will. up, it's been a sturdy year for the home builders, and we're going to tell you why the home sweet home trade <laughs> could build up even more gains. Plus, federal regulators warning about the CBD craze. Our own cannabis king, Tim Seymour, will break down what that could mean for the cannabis space. Stick around. Much more fast money coming up. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. The home builder ETF, one of them, the XHB, is on a tear, hitting its highest levels in nearly two years. But new home sales fell just a touch last month. Is the housing run done? Let's get now to Diana Olick, who's got more on these numbers. Diana. Brian, it is absolutely not done. Look, new home sales did fall in October compared with September, but September's number was revised so much higher that the monthly drop really doesn't mean much. The better comparison is that October sales were up a whopping 32 percent versus October of last year. Now, that is why we're seeing the big builder stocks pop today. Names like DR Horton, Lennar, KB Home, Meritage, and Pulte, they were already up dramatically year-to-date, but it looks like there is still room to grow. Builder sales have been buoyed this year by lower mortgage rates and a shortage of existing homes for sale. Now, price gains for those existing homes are heating up again, according to Case Schiller. So if the cost difference between comparable new and existing homes starts to shrink, well, new homes become more attractive. Now, for new homes, the median price was down 3.5% annually in October as demand is clearly on the lower end of the market. Builders are trying to pivot to meet that demand, but they're still up against much higher costs for land, labor, and regulatory compliance. They're still not even back to normal historical levels of production despite this much higher demand. Brian? You know, prices, though, Diana, they keep going up. You look at the historical data, I think we're up $100,000 per home going back just about eight or nine years. Are, when you talk to these home builders, are they are they just growing more confident that they can, despite the trends of what millennials apparently want to do, they can just keep big building it's bigger not, and more expensive homes? 
No, they're actually building smaller homes, believe it or not. The average size of a home is shrinking of newly built homes, and that's because the builders are trying to pivot to this entry-level demand. When we see these prices come down year over year, it's not so much that the builders are lowering the price on a specific type of home, but that the mix shift of that median is moving toward that entry level. You're seeing much stronger, stronger sales from that entry-level market. The problem is builders want to build more into that because they know they can sell more homes. But again, they have so much cost ahead of them oh. with construction, labor, land, etc. They just can't do it. So I, lo- I looked at the average price and I saw that went up, but I guess that's misleading data because obviously that's there's average. probably 90, average versus 90% median. are on the low end and then you got some Toll Brothers homes for 800000 that sort of skew that. Right. And that is a very small percentage of the market. When you look at that 750,000 plus, it's barely 12% of the market. Most of those homes are in the sort of two to 400,000 range. That's what's selling. Interesting stuff. All right, Diana, we'll look in Washington, D.C. Diana, thank you very much. We'll let you get out of the cold. Let's well, play a game. Oh, all right. we love you. Ready to play here. a game? I mean, I'm, I'm curious, curious what game you're going to play. So it is, it is name that stock. What is the best performing home? How many notes? Remember that show? <laughs> Name that tune. Was a what great is the best show. performing home builder stock over the last 12 months? Palti. Nope. And it's a name you probably don't know. Restoration Hardware. I want you no. to think Buckeyes. Ohio State. It's based. The Ohio where, State. Where are they? Columbus. MI Homes. MHO in Columbus, See, Ohio. You shouldn't do this if we don't know the answer. He so did this like power lunch the other day. He, I actually heard this one already. Playing trivia, the only guy yeah, I know. Thanks for watching, by the way. I, did, yeah. I heard that. You're the only I one I like. It, Here's a couple things about today's home sales numbers. First of all, this is the third month in a row where we've had over 700,000 uh, print on new home sales, despite the fact that the pricing dynamics are where they are. First time since mid-2007. So, um, as Diana talked about, look, the median home price is actually down about 5%, three, excuse me, 3.5% year over year, which tells you uh, the unaffordable housing dynamic is something that they are slowly working to get to. But right now, uh, lower interest rates and, and the consumer having a job is making this an incredible environment for housing. And I think it will continue. Yeah, we sold, what, 617,000 November last year, 733,000. This year, oh, the trend, the trend is Housing, very strong. They may have dropped guy from September to October, but let's be clear. Oh, the trend, the trend been, is the very, trend has been very strong, very favorable. And the president, another feather in the administration's cap. That's great. Another side mentioned earlier, Restoration Hardware was an eighty-five dollar stock in May. It's north of two hundred now. Thirty-two percent short interest. Warren Buffett decides, or some of his minions decide, they're going to take a stake. Reasonable valuation. Report on December fourth. That's a name I think you want to continue to own in this environment. That's a retailer that's done it right. And I got a bunch of friends here apparently that are going to dinner tonight at that Restoration Hardware down in that Fugazi place. That what's that called? That uh, downtown. It's called the, the Meat Pack. The meat and the Meat Pack West Village. What's yeah, and the Fort Charles Prime Rib guys. Yeah, thank have you. See the, that uh, restaurant on the roof there. It's Do they really? Yeah, yeah, sure. And, but they're still burger. sending the seventeen pounds of catalogs every. Every yeah, year. Yeah, that. That you is, own any of these names? Uh, I don't. I mean, for me, Home Depot is, you know, a combination of all of that. That's great. That's going on in, in the housing space, but also for consumers yeah, and for, you know, renovations. So many of these names have, have done great. Beezer Homes, not Weezer. Ah. Great band. Beezer Homes. All right. Sticking with housing. There is one name in the space that could be setting up for a big breakout. All right, Dan, why don't you head over to the plasma? 
and break it down for us, whoever who it is. Yeah, so let's talk about the Home Depot. Um, reported earnings last week and guidance that disappointed the street. The stock closed down 5.5% on November 19th after that. We've talked about a lot of retail earnings over the last couple of weeks, and there's a lot of uh, there's been a lot of dispersion in the results. This one was kind of surprising. This stock gapped down from an all-time high on that November 19th and kept on going. Um, but today, call volume got really hot. It was three times that of puts. And it came after an announcement that the company is going to have their analyst and investor day on December 11th. The stock caught a bit and kept on going. Um, but there were buyers of the November 29th weekly 225, or, or 222.5 calls, paying about 36 cents on average. A lot of those were opening. That was some short-term trading, playing for some momentum into the end of the week. Um, that's not particularly convicted price action, but it did kind of confirm what was going on in the stock. And I just want to go to the chart real quickly because this is that one-month chart. This is where the stock was trading at all-time highs before the uh, earnings. Not only did it gap down that day, but it kept on going. It turned, and then it kind of started moving up um, today. I think the most interesting chart, though, is the one-year chart. Look at this. This is the December low, and it has kind of held this uptrend like a boss. Look where it bounced right today from that line here. And if you think about this, I think traders are playing for continuous continued momentum into that analyst day. One last point here. Let's go to implied volatility, the price of options in the HD. It came down pretty hard after the earnings. I think once traders feel like the bad news is out of the way, you could see yourself setting up for a play back towards those highs up near 240 if there is good news at that December 11th analyst day. I would do it playing with defined risk through calls or call spreads. All right. Good stuff there on the Home Depot. And Karen likes the equity as well. All right. Coming up. Disney having another magical day. We're going to break down what is driving that stock to, yep, you guessed it, all-time highs. Don't go anywhere. Much more Fast Money right after this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Why don't we get a look at our Kramer cam because it's a big night tonight. Jim is laying out 10 reasons why the market's big rally still has legs. We've got that and much more coming up on Mad Money at the top of the hour. There you see the live Kramer cam. Stick with us. Fast Money. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Disney Plus hitting some big numbers less than two weeks after its launch. Julia Borston's got more on the magic from L.A. Julia. Well, Brian, it has been a big day for Disney. The stock hitting an all-time high. Consumer Edge Research initiating coverage with an overweight rating, saying, quote, Disney is now clearly under-earning with big strategic shifts ongoing. We see early signs of traction, and the flywheel is working. And Disney Plus is definitely getting early traction. Aptopia reporting that the Disney Plus mobile app has been downloaded 15.5 million times in the two weeks since it launched. Also reporting that Disney's brought in some $5 million in revenue from those app downloads. Now, people do seem to be buying Disney's bundle of Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus, with daily downloads of Hulu and ESPN both up more than 50% in the two weeks since Disney Plus launched compared to the two weeks prior. Now, we don't know how many people are simply signing up for a free trial, but we do know that engagement is high. Disney Plus is averaging nearly 26 million sessions per day over the last week. And Disney Plus does not seem to be hurting its rivals. Worth noting that Aptopia says Netflix, Amazon Prime Video, and HBO downloads are unaffected. Brian? Julia, I know we, we talked about this on the CBC call this morning, but it's a good question. I think if you have a family and you've got, let's say, you've got two Apple TVs and an iPad, 
and you download Disney Plus three times, right? Because it automatically downloads on the on all your devices. Does that is that one That's or is yet. that three? I mean, how do we know how many are? You, you see what I'm saying? Well, look, these are these numbers are not a total analog for or sort of a, it cannot be translated one to one for the number of subscribers. These are purely the number of downloads. So I, I don't know how many of those 15 million are individual subscribers. But it's also worth noting that that 15 million number does not include all the people who signed up on their television. And a lot of people may have signed up for Disney Plus via their Roku or Apple TV. They might have done it right on their TV screen. So this is just a slice of that Disney Plus business. Um, but I do have to remind everyone that the first day of Disney Plus, the company said it got 10 million downloads. We don't know how many of those are paying subscribers, how many people they've gotten it through Verizon. But we will learn more when Disney reports its next earnings. By, by all intents and purposes, Julia, is The Mandalorian, their Star Wars, is that a hit? How do we define hit now? It seems like it's a hit based on the fact that they got so many downloads just in the first day. And that really is the flagship um, piece of content that they're launching with. Obviously, they have other original series and then they have the huge library. But the idea is that something totally fresh and new and different like The Mandalorian from a filmmaker like uh, John Favreau is really going to be bringing in subscribers. And then hopefully they'll stick around for the library. Yeah, Julia Borston, they stuck around for you. It's a big story. Julia, thank you very much. Disney. I know this, the numbers are big, but the so is the valuation on them. Well, you use the, the, the flywheel term has never been truer with any company other than Disney. And if you look at uh, Frozen 2 out last weekend, record global opening, $350 million. This is going to be a billion-dollar release. This is going to play into their asian theme parks. I mean, this is the company that we're, we're giving them the, the multiple based upon streaming, but their core business, of which they have five of them that print north of $5 billion in terms of revenues. But Studio, to me, is where they continue to kind of grease the rails for the rest to their CPG and their theme parks, and it's very exciting. Big valuation, though, 25 times next year's number. I mean, that's been the, that's been the criticism. It's been the wrong criticism. But, you know, you, you know the ecosystem the works. You go on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, and they give you Disney+. Plus. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> genius, right? I mean, that's my... F- you know my two favorite rides? I know we've got to go to break. Do you know what they are? Because you asked the question. Pirates I didn't know Caribbean. the answer Space to Space Mountain. No, you're wrong. Hall of Presidents, which is br- genius. Country Fair Jamboree. And country... That's Seriously? number three. Yeah. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride is... So if we go together, maybe, you know, how much? I like it. It's a small world. We'll break those boats, guys. You know what I mean? It'll be be rescued by the Disney Coast Guard. All right, up next, we got final trades. All right, time now for your final trades. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour, Yappy McDougal, kick it off. Yappy is here to to tell you it's SLB or oil field services are actually starting to see some growth, and I think this is an interesting spot. It's been a dangerous trade, though. Be careful. Oh, I like that. All right, Karen? Yes, mine is Sell Tiffany. If you are in it for the deal, this is it. 135 is as good as it's going to get, and unless you want to play risk arbitrageur, but I think... Money can find Other luxury more. retailers have more value because of that deal, Karen, quickly? Yes, I hope so. Hope so. Right, hey, guy, what did the Home Depot hold like a, like a boss? Yeah, it held that uptrend. Like I think you boss. play that one to get back up to the prior highs into that analyst meeting. Like and you know who hosted like a boss? Brian Sullivan. Even Played hurt. hurt this evening, but he did yeoman's work. So thank you, Brian. Safe trip to Vienna. Go to the Opera House. Sarepta trading very well. Bring back some Sarepta trader. I like it. Thank you all very much. Yappy McDougal, appreciate it. Bring me something <laughs> back from Vienna. We'll, we'll do. Jim Cramer, Mad Money. 
Hi, I'm Nick. I'm getting married today. I'm also a firefighter and first responder. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can make it to my ceremony to start the next chapter of my life. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. 